Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I first heard the term social distancing a while back, I thought it sounded kind of humorous and would be something I could use in a message someday. Shortly after that, everything blew up and there was nothing funny about it suddenly. In fact, it might just save your life. Many of the nation's church campuses, if not most, have now gone dark. Because of the possibility of contagion, practicing social distancing has become the new normal to minimize the possibility of exponentially passing on the virus that's disrupted our lives. And we are adjusting. We've moved on to high tech rather than high touch with online worship and group meetings by conference call or video. Social distancing has become the new buzzword. Many of the things in our lives that we used to take for granted have changed. Instead of dining out, we're taking out. Theaters, ski resorts, even casinos are closed. Sports seasons have been suspended. Airlines are cutting flights. And just last week, the U.S. State Department issued its highest level warning to Americans not to travel abroad. Some weddings and even funerals, or at least the large memorial services, have been postponed. We're very careful, and rightly so, about stepping out into crowds. We don't shake hands with each other. Many people are wearing masks. We wash our hands religiously. But seeing the nation, the government, and industry come together to meet a whole list of new needs, we're hunkering down with at least a sense of optimism, if not an overabundance of hand sanitizer and toilet paper. Social distancing has become an important strategy. But here's the enduring good news in all this. As much as we ought to practice social distancing, we can be sure of one thing. God emphatically does not. It's not in God's nature to be distant. The central event in the story of salvation, the incarnation, is all about God entering our world and our experience, not departing from it. Emmanuel, God with us. God will not and does not distance himself from us. He hasn't done it in the past. He's not doing it now and he will not do it ever. It's a theme that runs all through Scripture. God is near to us, not distant from us. And that's why the Apostle Paul can write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's from Romans 8. In our gospel lesson this morning, we have a real hands-on example. Jesus and his disciples are confronted with a man who had been blind from birth, didn't have the advantage of having once seen, like people who lose their sight to an accident or a disease. He'd never seen the face of his mother or his father. He'd never seen the magnificent temple. He'd never seen his home, or a camel, or a donkey. And he'd certainly never seen a paycheck, because in his world there was no work for a blind man. He relied on the support of his family and friends, or he begged, or he starved. He'd never seen another person, and in that society most people walking by never even saw him. But the disciples see him as they pass by. And when they do, a theological question comes to mind. Now, in first century Palestine, it was common to associate illness and tragedy with sin. If you sinned, God would get you or someone else down your lineage. 
It was in their scriptures. Actually, in Exodus 20, where the first commandment prohibits idol worship. It says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Sin tends to beget sin. And as our sinful nature, the sinful natures of our parents and our grandparents are passed on, so their sinful habits can be passed on, just like their customs and practices. And so, therefore, would God's anger. This is the part that got the attention of the rabbis, the vengeful, scary God part. The rest of the verse, the sweet gospel, was virtually ignored. The part that promises to forgive that's also offered in that same breath, ultimately through faith in Jesus. In other parts of God's word, the prophets had said that each man must bear his own sins. And so the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? One of the big mistakes people make about God is assuming they've got him all figured out. For the man to have sinned before he was born would have been quite a trick, unless you were among those who believed, along with some of the ancient Greeks and modern-day Mormons, that souls pre-exist, just waiting for a body to inhabit. But in reality, unless he just kicked too hard one time in the womb, there was no way for him to have sinned before being born. His parents' transgressions would seem like a more likely answer. Why do bad things happen? You know, why do some people get the virus and others don't? Who sinned? We ask the same question. You know, why did this man get cancer and his brother didn't? Why is Children's Hospital full of innocent little kids while drug dealers are running around free and comparatively healthy? Why is our prayer list so long? Good, godly people. You'll ask the same question if tragedy or serious illness ever crosses your path. Why me, God? Why not the old heathen down the street? And you'll get, finally you'll get around to, what did I do to offend you so that you gave me leukemia, God? Or a stroke? Or in line with our lesson this morning, why are you taking my eyesight? In the first place, we make a mistake by presuming to know the, the will of God, his perfect will, as we like to say in church, although if you're the one suffering, that's probably not much comfort. What we do know is that God doesn't give anybody cancer or liver, liver failure or a massive coronary or any other terrible thing. You know, if you feel like you have to blame somebody, blame Adam. He's the one who steered the human race right onto the road to ruin. Sin changed the world. It's defective now. No longer the perfect place that God first created it to be and intended it to be. But before the world changed, we changed. Because we're imperfect too. A person might be born blind today because of a single defective gene in an ultimately defective genome. <clears throat> Something didn't click on or squirt out when it was supposed to, and there you are. The disciples had it half right. It was about sin, just not in the way they imagined. Things just happen in an imperfect world. And sometimes God does seem to step down into it in a miraculous way and, and put them right. And sometimes he doesn't. We just don't know why one and not the other. You know, put it on your list of things to ask when you get to heaven, I guess. Maybe you'll be in line right behind me at the information window. But here's the thing. Don't just accept illness or misfortune as God's will and do nothing. Don't sit in the dark and shrivel up and die without praying for healing, or taking advantage of God's other gifts and opportunities, like the whole field of medicine. 
a while back in the UK, a 19-year-old man was legally blind. He had 15, about 15% vision. Um, got into a big argument with his mother. He got into her car and he took off. Now, he's never had a driving lesson, couldn't get a driving, driver's license, but he was angry and he drove off on the wrong side of the road. I know everybody over there drives on the wrong side of the road, but this is on their wrong side of the road. Anyway, before long, he hit a car coming in the opposite direction, driven by an unsuspecting 20-year-old girl who was on her way to her job at a senior home. The impact tore the side right off her car, threw her onto the road, even though she'd been wearing a seatbelt, and the car burst into flames. The blind guy, who had an alcohol content over the legal limit, kept on driving until he hit another car and overturned. Sadly, the young woman died, and the young man was eventually convicted of manslaughter. <clears throat> What are the odds of all the things happening that had to happen exactly when they happened for that accident to occur? And then throw a blind guy into the mix. What if the girl had caught one more red light along the way or stayed home long enough to just make a phone call or stopped at Starbucks before she hit the highway? Just three or four or even a five minute delay for any number of reasons and we may have had a completely different story to tell or no story at all. Fallen world. Random occurrences, sin. And where was God? Did he cause the accident? I won't believe that if I live to be 100. Could he have prevented that tragedy? He's God. Absolutely he could. And we'll never know why he didn't. Now, sometimes it seems so obvious that he's reached down into our lives in some miraculous way, doesn't it? The guardian angel thing. And other times, especially when tragedy hits home, it seems like he doesn't care. But we know from his past history and from his word and from the fact that he allowed his own son Jesus to be led away and crucified so that you and I might find forgiveness, that he does care, that he cares to death. I know he was there for that young woman who was tragically killed, that he was right there with her as she lay on the road dying, that he's been with all the people who have succumbed to the coronavirus. I know that events like this break his heart over a world gone askew, but at the same time, he was there offering his comfort, waiting to take them home. And we rarely understand God's plan in advance, but that's no reason not to trust him. Our blindness often serves his ends. In a revealing insight, the Lord tells his disciples, uh, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There you go. That the works of God might be displayed in him. To the blind man listening to this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, the Lord's words must have been like a light in the darkness. In fact, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. <clears throat> Jesus is the light of truth and grace, shedding his light all over his ministry, everywhere he went. But now, in his heavenly glory, he's the light of the whole world on an even grander scale. The whole thing's news to the blind man who'd probably been raised believing that he suffered for the sins of his forefathers. Now he's overhearing that there's been a purpose to it all along, that his blindness will be used to display God's glory, and that's much more than just a glimmer of hope. It means his life has purpose, has value. This man had been born blind so that at just the right moment, Jesus could display his divine power by healing him. There's no way he could have seen that coming. We only learn those things in retrospect. I don't think he had a premonition that day, the day before that he was about to receive his sight. 
And he woke up in the dark that morning just like he had every other morning of his life without any hint that this day would be anything other than the same old struggle to survive. Never dreamed his life was about to change forever. It's an unusual miracle. <clears throat> John says, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And what does Jesus promise for that? Not a thing. But listen, so he went and washed and came back seeing. Just mud on the eyes and a command to go and wash it off in that particular pool. Can you think of any reason why he might not have done that? I can think of plenty. I've been blind from birth and it's just something I have to live with. That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Who are you anyway? What is this, make fun of the blind guy day? What if it doesn't work? But now it was up to him. Now, as far as we know, he may not even have known who Jesus was, but he went anyway. So does that mean he had a great faith? Well, he certainly had hope and maybe courage because he went, but did he know for certain what would happen? Jesus hadn't promised a thing, but he obeyed him anyway, and so maybe he trusted that something would change by this encounter that he's had. But that's really all we get from John. <clears throat> he'd overheard the Lord's conversation with the disciples. Maybe he'd heard stories around town about other miracles that were happening. They called him the rabbi. So maybe did he connect some dots? Here's what I think. I think that no one has ever come away from an encounter with Jesus unchanged, and neither did he. He went away, and he washed, and he went home. It doesn't take a deep faith in God to work a miracle. You know, if I'd been standing in his sandals and I heard Jesus spit and then felt that wet mud on my eyes, I might have gagged, wiped the mud off the best I could with the sleeve of my, my, my shirt and, and went home blind. This man doesn't. Faith believes what Jesus says even when you don't fully understand. The blind man didn't have a lot to go on, but then he didn't have a lot to lose either. And it was enough. People who survive great trials in their lives and come through with their faith intact make a moment-by-moment -moment choice to believe that God is who he said he is and that he'll do what he said he'll do. It's not about feelings or emotions because we don't always feel like having faith in God when we're standing knee-deep in life's muck. We get angry with him and we question him, but saving faith is belief right alongside that unbelief and then acting on the belief part in spite of our questions and our doubt. That's what the blind man did, and he received a miracle. When the Pharisees heard what happened and caught up with him, they really gave him the third degree, and this man gives a marvelous witness, even though he's tossed out of the temple for it. When Jesus hears about what happened, he seeks the man out, introduces himself, and receives a powerful confession of faith. You know, if you think about it, this story has more blind people in it than people who can see. The disciples were blind to the ability and tendency of God to work in unexpected ways. They were blind to the real problem of sin, its widespread effects. The blind man was indeed without sight, physically and maybe even spiritually, at least in the beginning. The Pharisees were so hardened against Jesus that they were blinded to the truth of God standing right in front of them. But faith gives you more than the eye can see. God had already said he would send a savior one day. 
But on Good Friday, no one could have guessed that anyone was being saved, let alone the whole world. And look how that turned out on Easter morning. I was blind, but now I see. There are lots of ways to be blind, but God can break through every one. Certainly good news for these uncertain times. Amen. And now may that peace of God that passes all human understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.